You know what I've really gotten back into lately? Tell me. BuzzFeed Unsolved. Yes. I don't I know. have not actually watched a video in quite uh, in a few months. Yeah, I recently subscribed on YouTube to like a lot of the BuzzFeed Unsolved stuff and there's like the true crime, they also have like the paranormal and the ghost shit and there are so many, but they also have a series of like how they got caught and uh, honestly, I oh. could just spend hours just binging all of this stuff because they're like 10 to 20 minute videos and Mm -hmm. it's really easy to watch like 10 of them and be like oh shit i've been looking at the screen for a long time that is the danger of youtube videos is because you just you know you're like oh i'm gonna sit here watch a few and you look up and it's three hours later (laughs) and you're like i have not stopped and if you do it in bed holding your hand up your like elbow is like shaking and stiff and you're like what have i done to myself also i need to go to sleep it's 4 Uh a.m all of the (laughs) yes plus one um well hello everyone this is blood and wine i'm Brittany, and i'm tyler and um our forearms are tired from watching youtube for 25 hours (laughs) eyes are also bloodshot and watering because we're tired yeah i just this is why i need a bedtime you know like growing up we always hated a bedtime and now that i don't have someone telling me to go to bed i'm just like why do i keep staying up until 1 a.m on a work night which is essentially a school night yeah and then you always (laughs) look at your clock do the mental calculation of you're like Okay, well, if it takes me 10 minutes to fall asleep, and I watch one more YouTube video, and then I wake up at this alarm, then I can get a solid 5 hours and 10 minutes of sleep, <laughs> and that that should be enough. And then you start bargaining with yourself, and you're like, okay, well, I don't, 5 hours is basically the same as 5 hours, 10 minutes, so I can watch one more video, and also pit sniff. <laughs> Nope, I don't smell. I'm probably not going to shower in the morning either. I showered this morning, and if you shower every other day, that's enough. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, God. Are Um, we trash? (laughs) No, we're humans. Oh. Honestly, I swear to God, not everyone showers every day, and it's not that big of a deal. Well, you're, like, not supposed to, because your skin oils will, like... I don't know, fall off and your skin will burn. I don't know. (laughs) Um, As long as you shower more than like once a month, which is what they did back in the day, which they smelled a lot. They had a lot of perfumes. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so that's life. But this is a podcast and we're going to talk about murder and stuff today and also drink some wine. Yes, all of those things. And if it's 4 a.m. and you're making the decision to listen to us instead of go to sleep because you have to be up at 7, we appreciate it. But you can listen in the morning if you need to. Um, Speaking of listening to us, I, for some reason, decided earlier today that I wanted to listen to a little bit of episode one. Oh, God. And it took me about two minutes in when I was, like, cringe screaming and laughing my ass off because it's just so funny to hear how different we were just, like, a year and a half ago. Like, I listened and I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, my God, Brittany, how old are you, 15? Like, good <laughs> God. Nope, Is still it... 30. <laughs> God. Yeah, no, I have not listened to episode one, I think, since we posted it, like, or since, like, editing it and stuff, so... Well, it's literally such a difference. It's, we sound better. We're used to being on mic because 
it's true. When you first start recording your own voice, it's kind of weird. It's like, oh, how much am I going to think about what I'm saying? And what do I want to sound like? And then honestly, after you do it almost 100 episodes, you don't give a shit anymore because you sound fine. And well, because that was one of the first things, you know, that when we very first started recording, the whole like, oh, I hate listening to myself recorded. And I quickly got over that. At this point, I'm like, yep, I don't know who he is. Yeah, it's you just kind of ignore it. You get over it. And also, no one likes the sound of their voice recorded. But anyway, it's so true. just a little tidbit about, you know, listening to us. Um, but tid. thank all of you guys so much for listening. We always appreciate it. You always know this. And just want to take a quick moment to just chat about Patreon. You guys have heard about it. We've got plenty of murder minis over there. Plenty of bottle talks. We just recorded one right before this. Yeah, just hop on over. Pick a support level and you'll get all of these awesome perks. You can direct your own episode. So hop on over and pick that level and pick a topic. Pick a wine. Boom. Pick your nose. I don't care. But Uh, check out Patreon. (laughs) Yes. And while you do that, make sure to subscribe to us on your podcast listening platform of choice. Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play. Uh, iTunes pod, or Apple Podcasts, all of all of those were there. Okay, so now getting on to what what we're even going to talk about in this episode. Yes, and tell me the topic. So you, you don't know it. You just picked a case, crossing your fingers, it falls into the topic. Yep, I just I just <laughs> hoped. Um. So this week, there's a lot of them, a lot more than we would ever like to admit yeah. and know, but it's true. We're going to talk about axe murders, and yep. We've covered a few. We've already covered a few cases, like I recently did the Axeman of New Orleans, and he's an axe murderer. And, like, the whole... What? Yeah, I know. The Axeman of New Orleans is an axe murderer? You clearly weren't listening at all then, I guess. No. (laughs) Um, But it's horrifying. Axes, I feel like, are such a violent tool to use, and they're generally used in crimes. Um, It's not a random crime, you know? It's like a crime of passion because you have to repeatedly use this this heavy and um awkward weapon it's i don't know it's just it's so violent that it shocks me that it was used so much but honestly a lot of the axe murders they happened a long time ago and it's because everyone had an axe And, like, that was something you had to go cut the firewood for, like, your stove and for warming, you know, heating your home. And so axes were things that are pretty normal to have around. I don't have an axe now. I also don't have a fireplace and an electric stove. I have an electric stove. So I really have no use for wood chopping or wood chopping tools. But, yeah, that's why a lot of these, I feel like, happened. Like, that was a tool of choice back in the day and maybe not as much now. Not that they're yeah. not that they're not uh, used, but yeah, they definitely still are used today. But they are probably, I think, one of the most terrifying murder weapons out there because, again, it combines the sharpness of a knife with the bluntness of like a club, all in one. Oh god! I guess a hammer, not a club. Yeah, but it's just super violent, super awful. So I guess that's you know we're gonna just talk about that. And my god, before we do, we need some wine. Yes, we do. So the wine I'm drinking today is the 2015 Lapisara Salento Primitivo from Puglia, Puglia, Italy, a town in Italy. But um, so first off, 
this wine, it's a Primitivo. I was like, ooh, I've heard of that. I don't know if I've ever had one. This will be fun. And when I got home, started looking into the wine, did not realize a Primitivo is a Zinfandel. It's the same grape. Zinfandel is basically the American name of the grape. I had no idea. Although, I mean, I've never looked into it, but there's a Primitivo wine that I get at Trader Joe's a lot. Not as much recently, but I used to get it. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, I I thought it was some cool Italian grape. It's not. <laughs> it's a Zinfandel. I mean, it is a cool grape, but it's, it's just a Zin. Also, no wonder I really liked it. Yeah. So this one, it's pretty bold. It's a little more smooth than tannic, and it's very soft with... like very little acidity and the people that left reviews described it as nice light not as spicy from a cooler region which makes it not as spicy as the red zinfandel ripe red fruits balanced and aromatic and a nice middle of the road easy drinking wine i mean no complaints about an easy drinking wine none at all can i see so, it because like you showed me your, oh, yeah. your picture and i really like this bottle it's really pretty the label yeah it has um you know a very like classic label in gold and then just above the name it's almost like a watercolor sunset that's what i thing. was thinking too yeah sunset but yeah when i got this one and started doing research i actually was like wait have we had this one before but I don't think so. I couldn't find any. Uh, I went back through notes, could not find that we drank this. And I don't remember it if we did. I don't remember it if we did. Well, either way, I'm going to get it open. Get it open. I see how you are using your not as fancy wine cork thing again. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it's because the foil cutter on this one works. Well, and also sometimes a good and trusty one is just what you need. You know? Yeah. Oh my God. This cork is in there it doesn't want to come out it doesn't want you to have this wine at all Ugh. god i feel like you had to use your whole upper body strength or maybe you're like really weak though i don't i don't know to be honest maybe both <laughs> can be true um all right let's see how pretty this wine is give it a pour Ooh, that's dark it is very dark it's like plum color uh no it's a little more red Ooh. Strong. That's aromatic. <laughs> well, while your wine breathes, I'm going to tell you about my wine. So this week, I'm doing the 2018 Tilia Malbec from Mendoza, Argentina. And this is one from Whole Foods. It was about $10. And my research told me that this wine is a really good one for that price because wines mm. that are similar to it generally cost about 30% more. So more like $13, $14. The Tilia wines are They're made at the Bodegas Esmeralda in the eastern region of Mendoza. And this Malbec particularly, it exemplifies the very true varietal character of Malbec from Mendoza with grapes that are sourced from vineyard sites in both eastern and southern regions of Mendoza. And Tilia, it's actually named after the tree that's commonly found in Argentina's wine country. So for years, these vineyard workers, they would use the flowers from the tilia to make an herbal tea, and they would enjoy this tea after a hard day's work. 
And so this name, Tilia, was selected for this wine in honor of this Argentinian tradition. The tasting notes for this, it has some aromas of black cherries and plums that are accompanied by violets and vanilla. And then on the palate, it's a very rich and full-bodied wine with flavors of juicy blackberries, cranberries, and black currants, followed by notes of that vanilla that comes in and some sweet spices. When it comes to a food and what tastes best with this kind of wine, you're going to want to pair it with a meat dish that mirrors those tangy berry flavors. So something like a cranberry pot roast or a roast duck with a sour cherry sauce. So you want like a rich meat that's also got some tart fruit, which I've never I'm heard hungry. of cranberry. <laughs> I've never heard of cranberry pot roast, um, but I would absolutely give that a try. Yes. Um, I'm also hungry. I realized I haven't eaten dinner yet. Uh, so here's my dinner. It's in a bottle and it's a <laughs> screw top. Oh, nice. So I'm going to get into this. That was a pretty easy open. I almost I almost picked up my water glass to pour this in. <laughs> Ooh. Okay. This is a pretty wine too. Sometimes I'm scared I'm going to like accidentally cut my tongue when I lick it. The Yeah, when you lick the little drop on the end of the bottle. Yeah. yeah. Also, people, um, don't worry. I don't do that when I'm sharing wine with others, just when it's all for me. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Because what? You're going to let it soak into a napkin? That's money down the drain. Well, and also I'm putting it on my desk and I don't want to run my desk. You know, well, that too. I paid $20 for this desk. so yeah, I know. I was there. <laughs> I helped break it down and put it into your Jenga it into your, no, not Jenga, uh, Tetris. Tetris it into your car. I know. I remember that day. Um, yours is also very dark it is it's a very dark wine and you definitely smell those berries like whoa mine is giving me heartburn not... just kidding no because it's very low on the acid red fruits honestly it's giving me like strawberry on the nose which i wouldn't strawberry. expect from something this heavy i get the black cherries and the plums mostly hmm. black cherry all right well let's clink and let's chug cheers, cheers and yeah. chug boom i like <laughs> it all right cheers cheers i love that spiciness that comes with a malbec mm -hmm. it's so good like it's not a super heavy wine it's very medium bodied and <laughs> i just looked at your eyes and i think yours is a pretty full wine yep uh, which is interesting because Zinfandels are generally more medium. But this Malbec, it definitely has that spicy notes towards the tail end. Um, I wouldn't say they're sweet spice. Well, I mean, they're not peppery either. So maybe you would consider that a sweet spice. It's not baking spices. It's spice. Mm. And very much um, my description said this is full bodied. I really am getting more of a medium bodied. Maybe it needs to open up a little bit more. I really, I haven't given it time to breathe since I just opened the bottle, but I can smell that vanilla and I'm getting all the black currants and the plum and it's it, light mm. on the plum. I would say more, more on the currant and the black cherry. This is a totally solid wine to enjoy with dinner or after dinner or for dinner like i am tonight nice yeah mine is it's not so much that it's uh full-bodied because i would say mine's more of a true medium it's just so much more fruit forward than i was oh. expecting because when i think of a uh, zinfandel or i guess a primitivo prim wow <laughs> is it a primitive wine yes wine from no, the caveman I, days <laughs> 
that's what it is. It's been aged for uh, 17,000 years. <laughs> uh, no, but I always think of like it having a peppery kind of thing. Like to me, that's what Zin is. It's very peppery. This one, I mean, the first taste is almost like a fruit punch. And oh. it's, it's not sweet, but it's not as dry as I would expect. Like there's not really any sweetness in it, but it is smooth in the way that like a little bit more sugar and it would be semi-sweet or I guess semi-dry. Really? Yeah. It has just a, I don't know. It's, it's not bad. It's not my favorite. Usually when I go for Zins, I want, I want that like peppery and it's not giving me that. It's giving me just a punch in the face of fruit. See, I'm used to Zins being a little bit fruitier and getting more of those pepper notes from a cab. But I've had a peppery Zen. I just, I've had fruit forward Zens before and they really oh. do change the way you look at and approach a Zinfandel. Because once you've had a super fruity one, it's different. It's kind of shocking. Yeah. Or- I mean, like Hawaiian punch levels of fruit going <laughs> on here. All right. Well, we have our wines. We have our topic. I'm going to jump into my case and talk to you about the axe murders that I chose. All right. Tell me about your axe murderer. So the case that I chose is the Von Breda murders. I feel like that sounds vaguely familiar, but I think I say that all the time at this point, and maybe I'm just making shit up. So I I don't know anything about this one. Tell me. Yeah, I have no idea. You don't know it either? You're just going to guess throughout the rest of it? Yes. No, I have no idea if you know it. Oh. Because it's one that maybe, oh. uh, because it's, it happened pretty recently. Yeah. So, we'll see. Oh, yeah. Um, also, sorry, I'm like laying on the sass real thick today. I know. I'm like, damn, okay. <laughs> I'm on fire. Snap, snap, snap. I didn't want to I'm usually snap. the sass queen of the podcast. I guess I've just been listening to you so fucking much that I wanted to be sassy. Bish, don't come for my crown. I know. Although, I I guess I, I've been talking to you a lot. I feel like I've called you like seven times every day this week. Um, uh, you have. I keep being like, oh, I don't know. My phone rings and I'm like, Brittany, what? And then I see and I'm like, oh, okay. Hey, what's up? <laughs> That's really mean, because I always have important things to say. It is. And they're good conversations, but it'll be like, we'll hang up and be like, oh, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll chat tomorrow or whatever. <laughs> 40 minutes later, <laughs> phone ringing. Okay, I'm sorry. I I can't go over to your front door and knock on it anymore. So If sometimes... you were going over to my front door, <laughs> leaving, and then coming back every like 40 <laughs> minutes, I would lock my door. I wouldn't. That's mean. <laughs> I actually don't put it past you. Um, no, At least I answer. <laughs> I know. And when you don't, I never assume like that you were busy. I assume you're like blowing me off because you're like, literally, I just I just need a night to myself, which honestly wouldn't blame you at this point. <laughs> no, usually it's because I don't know how you do it, but you have <laughs> this knack for always calling me right when I'm about to take Max out <laughs> or right when I'm coming back in from taking him out. And I don't have service in my apartment, so I have to Wi-Fi call. So if I pick up coming in, it's like, hey, I'm going to have to hang up in 10 seconds when I get inside and connect <laughs> to Wi-Fi. And when I'm about to leave, I'm like, well, sorry, Max. I know. But it literally, it's like, I'm standing in my kitchen, <laughs> got like my keys in my pocket. And you call. Maybe I need to stop calling you, but I have the fear that you'll never call me, so. I, I'm totally <laughs> fine with you calling. I just think your superpower of calling me literally 
like, I'm not even joking. It's probably 60 to 75% of the time you call me, I am about to walk in or out of my door. <laughs> I just have like this spidey sense, I guess, where I'm just like, where's Tyler going? Do, 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 do. Hello? Basically. Okay. Yes. Um, Sorry. Just tell me about this axe murder that I'm not ready for. I will tell you all the things, but first I will tell you about my sources. Um, the source I used an article from Ranker by Jacoby Bancroft, which sounds like a very rich person's name. It also saying. sounds like a badass band name. Jacoby Bancroft? Yeah. Okay. I mean, sure. Or like the lead singer's name. Yeah. Ja- no, no, I know what you mean. Jacoby and the boys. There's like... I don't know. Did an apartment next door to yours burn down? All I could hear are fire departments or uh, fire trucks. I don't know. So listeners, I don't know if y'all can hear it, but. The fire station is right down the street. And yeah, the, definitely a lot of, like a couple fire trucks just went by and police cars. But not not at my complex. It's down the street. But yeah, oh. you can just, you can hear so well. City life, man. Sirens. Yeah. I mean, True. True, true. Um, Another source I used is a blog called Alibi Apple, and I think the writer, that's their pseudonym, is Alibi Apple. That's what I could find. Oh, okay. An article from BBC News by Pumza Filani, and then the Wikipedia page for the Von Breda murders. So, on January 27th of 2015, in Cape Town, South Africa... The Von Breda family is sound asleep. Also, it could be Van Breda, but I'm going to say Von Breda since it's the last name. That just sounds more correct. Oh my god, I'm trying to think. I might know this one. If it's the one that I think it is, holy shit. Maybe it is. So, Martin, he's 54, he's the father of the family, and he comes from a very well-known South African family. But he was also very wealthy on his own and had made this pretty big fortune serving as a managing director for a real estate firm, Engel and Volkers. It's apparently internationally renowned real estate firm that I've never heard of. So, I mean, I've never heard of it either, but I don't really surf the web for real estate stuff unless it's on Redfin or Zillow. Then I absolutely I mean, yeah. do. If it's not Redfin, <laughs> Zillow, or like century 21 i don't know <laughs> i don't know it yeah if you're not on a bus stop bench or um an app i don't really know you Teresa, who was 55 was his wife and she'd also come from a pretty privileged background and was born into a pretty prominent south african family herself the two of them had been married for like 30 years and had pretty recently settled back into living in south africa They had spent six years in Australia, and they came back in 2014, so just the year before. They had three grown children, and by 2015, all three of them had moved out of the house. There was Rudy, who was 23, Henry, who was 20, and their daughter, Marley, was 16. So she had stayed with her family like with her parents stayed in their house, but she was going to college at Melbourne University in Australia before, so that's where she was. Uh, But then she wound up moving home, and so uh, I believe her older brothers did. Everyone was home this night, basically, is where I'm getting at. All five of them in the house. Families all together. Everyone's accounted for. Yes, and it's January 27th, because my first thought was like, oh, maybe they're home for the holidays. 
No. I mean, it's just the middle of summer for people in the Southern Hemisphere in South Africa. So I don't know. Maybe it's summer holiday. How weird would that be? And literally, I'm going to say this and I'm going to sound like such a stupid American, but like how weird would it be if summer was in January? We'd be in like summer right now. I know. Can you think about like in Australia, are your Santas and Speedos? <laughs> oh my like, god is that, someone that tell would be me. the best advertising campaign <laughs> and i need to know like is there christmas branded like sunscreen Ooh, because summer shit i don't know honestly when you're driving down the, about it when you're driving down the coast with the top down your friends are in it your hands are up sunglasses but you're jamming to like mariah christmas mariah christmas <laughs> nope not mariah carey mariah christmas i mean but basically I mean, we do that here, too, in the summer, but it's because I'm gay. Uh, So any of our Southern Hemisphere listeners, if you could explain how, I don't know, explain how December and January work. I don't know. What are your, um, if you celebrate Christmas or any winter holiday, um, what are your family traditions when it's the middle of the summer? (laughs) Yeah. Anyways, back to this. So it's 7.12 in the morning. The police get a call from Henry Van Breda, the middle child, and he's saying he needs an ambulance. He's very dazed, and at times he's incoherent. I read the transcript of the 911 call, and he's, like, not really answering questions and seems, like, confused and, like, he's kind of fading in and out. And it's the 911 operator, it's not 911 in South Africa, but they're like trying to figure out like what he's trying to tell them what's going on and then he tells them that somebody had attacked his family it was a guy with an axe so police arrive at the house and henry as he's hearing the you know sirens approaching he kind of staggers out of the house to meet them and he's very clearly wounded he had these slash wounds on his forearms and he'd also been stabbed in the hip oh So the police get there, the ambulance get there, and he starts kind of explaining what he knows. And he's like, my family's still in the house. Please help them. And the first police officer on the scene described a waterfall of blood flowing down the stairs. There's that image for you. That is like some shining shit. Yes. Which I now think this is two episodes in a row. You've said something that has sounded like The Shining. Also... I can only imagine the days that he's in. Like, he himself is injured, yet he's the only one that's alive enough or conscious, that's the word I'm looking for, to make a phone call. Yet he, good God, his body's going into shock because of the injury and also what's happening. Like, I just, I, I can't, I cannot put myself in this and imagine, this is too horrifying. A waterfall of blood? yeah. So he is placed in the ambulance. He's like kind of sitting in it. Um, His wounds aren't severe enough that they like need to take him to the hospital right now. They're still like questioning him and stuff. But he watched them take his younger sister out on a gurney and put her in an ambulance that goes to the hospital. She was still alive. So Marley had been attacked with an axe and she had suffered multiple chop wounds. And the worst of which was one on her left temple. They'd swung the axe into her head like they were cutting a tree. She'd also had one of her breasts hacked off. And so she was immediately rushed into the hospital. The forensic team gets there and they're following the blood evidence. They're able to like kind of track it and start to put pieces together. 
and map out what probably happened and how the attacker moved through the house. And they realized that Rudy, um, the oldest, had been attacked first because his body showed no defensive injuries and the majority of his wounds were on the back of his head because he'd been asleep. He had uh, chop wounds on his neck and they were so severe that he'd almost been decapitated with basically just skin holding his head to his body. Rudy also had his right arm completely severed and his penis had been cut off. Martin and Teresa, the parents, they both had these deep lacerations on their hands and arms, which were defensive injuries. They were awake when they were being attacked. Oh my god. And the position they were found in, they were like cowered down, like basically in a fetal position, trying to survive. Yeah. And they were killed. This is so brutal. Like, everything about this is, oh my god, like, just brutal is the only word I can think of because it's horrifying. Martin was killed by chop wounds to the front of his skull. So, like, the axe to the forehead. And Teresa died from these chop wounds to the back of her head. So, Marley and Henry were the only survivors of the attack. Rudy, Martin, and Teresa all died. And they were, like, deceased when the officers arrived, right? Yeah. So Henry managed to kind of compose himself, get himself together enough to relay these little bits and pieces of information. And he told his officers, his officers, the officers, uh, that he got up in the middle of the night to use the bathroom. And as he's sitting on the toilet, he hears this loud banging coming from the other side of the house. And he's like, um, I don't know, the house settled, I imagined it, whatever. But a few seconds later, he hears another loud crash, and that one had come from one of the bedrooms. So he, like, pulls up his underwear, he's standing there in the bathroom, listening, and then he hears his dad yell. He cracks open the door and looks out towards the bedrooms that are at the end of the hall, and then he sees a shadow under the door of his brother's bedroom. And then another loud cry for help. And so he starts kind of walking his way towards the bedrooms. He hears these shouts and he can't really tell whose voices are whose. But then he hears one that he doesn't recognize. So he's like, okay, this is someone is in the house. And then he's kind of inching towards his brother's room and the door flings open. And this tall black man is standing there with his face covered in a balaclava which is apparently what a ski mask is supposed to be called. Oh. Apparently they're called balaclavas, which sounds much fancier. It does. Maybe I just think baklava. Maybe I'm just hungry. (laughs) I think think. I'm just hungry. So he walks out of the room eating baklava. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. That's what happened. Uh, No, wearing a balaclava, wearing a ski mask. And he just stands there and he apparently stood aggressively, didn't say anything, He had this large knife in his left hand, and his right hand was on an axe. He was dual wielding. He says that they were staring at each other, and then this tense silence was ripped apart when the intruder just started cackling and lunged towards Henry, and he stabbed him and slashed at him with the knife. And then, like, Henry kind of jumps backwards when the man goes forward, so he doesn't, like, get fully stabbed. And then the man laughs and then runs away and drops the ma- the knife and the axe. And, and this is 
After he's already like killed two people. Three. Oh, it was after Three he already killed all of them. Three and tried to kill a four. Fourth, yeah. So things aren't and adding he's up. Laughing? Because, yeah. Okay. Things are not adding up for the investigators because first off, they can see that Rudy was killed first. So if the killer had just been coming out of Rudy's bedroom, you know, maybe he went back in, but that's weird. And also, the biggest thing: why was everyone in the house so brutally attacked? While Henry just had these superficial injuries. I mean, he was the one who, like, confronted the attacker. And he just got, like, little baby stabbed. And the dude ran away. If he had come here to kill everyone, why would he not hit you with the axe? Or do more than just, like, stab and then giggle and run? Well, and the thing is, Henry saw his face. I mean, yes, it was behind a ski mask. But Henry saw his face. So if this intruder is going to kill anyone... Henry's absolutely the top of that list. Yeah. And in my mind, it's, you know, one of the first things I thought was, well, I mean, he was attacking everyone while they were asleep and Henry's not. So maybe that, but the mom and dad, Martin and Teresa were awake. So I'm like, no. So yeah, things are just not adding up. I am smelling some bullshit. Yeah. And it's not just because he pulled up his underwear without wiping, apparently, which was a detail he provided and was a lot. Thanks, Henry, for the unnecessary details. And you know someone who gives a ton of details is a fucking liar. Bye, bye, bye. Yeah. So investigators start looking into Henry's phone and internet records. And they're like, this this timeline doesn't add up. Henry told the police that the attack happened at about 7 a.m. And, you know, he called the... Emergency services is 712, so he's like, it happened, I call. But apparently he'd googled the South African emergency service number at 4.13 a.m., three hours earlier. That's definitely fishy. And also, from like what it sounded like, I didn't dive too, too much into like their childhood, but I think for the most part they grew up in South Africa, so I just think it's kind of weird that you wouldn't have that memorized by heart, but... That, that's just me. And then they also saw that he tried to call his ex-girlfriend at 424. And he tried to call her six times between 424 a.m. and 442 a.m. But she never picked up. So they're like, looking at this, you know, okay, why is he Googling the emergency services? Calling his girlfriend to me doesn't seem suspicious because I'm like, I mean, it shows he was awake. I don't know. Maybe he was drunk and wanted to talk to her. To me, that piece alone is not that suspicious. With other things, I'm like, okay, this is starting to set a timeline. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, he could just... You said it was his ex? Yeah. Yeah, so him calling her six times is just some weird fucking ex behavior. That's not necessarily like a, oh, this means he killed his family. But I'm definitely leaning towards that as what I'm thinking because of the other stuff. Yeah. I will say, don't don't call your ex or anyone six times, and if they don't pick up, they're not picking up, unless you're, like, worried about them. Like, my friend said she'd be here an hour ago, and no one can get a hold of her. Sure. Or if, like, I don't know, you were driving to work, and um, you were going around a bend on the highway, and then traffic was stopped because tornado damage, and you rear-end a car in front of you, and then so you get on the phone, and you call your mom, and she doesn't pick up, and you call your sister, and she doesn't pick up, and then you call your dad, and he doesn't pick up, and then you just rotate until finally one of your sisters picks up. But it's fine. Hi, Mom, I rear-end a brand new Escape. It didn't even have its license plates yet. 
what a voicemail to listen to. But everything was okay. And that does suck, though. It's literally just, like, the world being like, not today, Tyler. You can't get a hold of anyone. Be an adult. Figure Mm -hmm. it out on your own. And you're like, I don't wanna! And I'm like, I had to crawl out of my back window because my doors were, like, crushed shut. I didn't know that. It was a lot. It's something we'll get into later. Um, I I mean, I rear-ended them on the interstate. I knew that. It's just another one of your, like, oh, wow, that was, this could have gone very differently. You know, like, all the times where you're like, oh, by the way, I was in the hospital yesterday. And I'm like, what the fuck, dude? Okay, well, yeah, but it's better. Would you rather me call you be like, I could be dying? Or call you be like, so... I am in the hospital, but everything's fine, so it doesn't really matter. I mean, yeah, but sometimes you don't even do that. You just tell me literally after the fact, and I'm like, dude, what if something could have happened? I would have come see you. I mean, you're right, you're right. I'm an asshole. We've established this more than once. Well, and you're wearing, you're trying to steal my sass crown, so anyways. (laughs) He tried calling her six times. She didn't pick up. So then forensic investigators looked. They're like, okay, he called at 712. Clearly some shit's going on around 4 a.m., but they were able to confirm that all of the victims, including Marley, had been attacked within just a few minutes of each other. They also realized, due to, like, the blood stuff and all that, that they'd been laying there for more than four hours. Not just a few minutes, and Marley had been laying there alive and bleeding to death next to him for four hours. Oh my god. Okay, I was wondering when the blood evidence was going to come into play for the timing, because I know there's like the congealing of blood when it's like outside the body and also inside the body when the heart stops. And then also the the liver mortis that happens over Mm -hmm. the hours of a body just laying there and liver mortis. We haven't talked about this often, but if you at all know the Adnan Saeed case, you definitely know what liver mortis is, but it's when the blood pools in a body so if you're laying dead on your left side all the blood's gonna pool on that side of your body and it has like i think bruising and stuff and Mm -hmm. they can use that to time like how long a body's been in that position yeah i mean it it became clear pretty quickly after they started looking that his story just was not adding up and you know when he was explaining the time difference he was like well i i must have blacked out from you know seeing this attack on my family and that's why and there's just a lot of stuff that i'm like "Mm, i don't know so an axe and a knife which both came from the house were recovered at the scene and they also found that there was no forced entry anywhere in the house and this is like rich fucking people Mm -hmm. like this is basically a compound so to break in there would be signs. I mean, there'd be signs if you broke in anywhere, but, like, you would be able to see that. And it there was nothing here. Right. And then, according to police, Henry was wearing just a pair of sleep shorts and socks that were covered in blood. And the DNA of the blood was from his parents and brother, which, to me, I'm like, again, kind of similarly to the girlfriend call, in a vacuum, just that one piece of evidence doesn't mean anything it's like well yeah he was alive and he found them. i mean he would go check on them or something exactly like he's saying he found them so if you were to find your family in that position or that situation 
yeah, you would probably run towards them and you're going to get their blood on you. Like, yeah. Agreed. But one of the most damning pieces in my mind, when they looked at his his injuries and were talked to his doctors, they were self-inflicted. I mean, obviously, at this point, I saw that one coming. Yeah. People who, like, create, like, self-inflicted wounds to try to look like they didn't just do this atrocious thing, it's always interesting to me because it's so easy for, like, detectives and, like, forensics to figure out, like, the trajectory and the angles and know that you did that to yourself. Like, this is, like, some fucking scream shit, you know, towards the end of the movie when they all, they're, like, stabbing each other because they don't want to be the killers. Also, spoiler alert. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, like, yeah, and, like, I think it was, like, actually the friend stabbed his friend and vice versa, but still, it's just, like, Come on, man. That's going to be found out. It's not going to yeah. be the same type of wounds that are inflicted on the victims. Well, and you also, you can't slash yourself or stab yourself with the same strength as an, or intensity. Even even if you're just not looking at the angles and stuff. I also don't understand how someone could stab themselves. Like, how your body would let that happen. Same. <laughs> so... I, that knife's hurt. Like, damn. I cut my finger on a mandolin the other day and I thought I was going to die. That sounds painful. I get a paper cut. It was and I just, cry. it was just like the, the like corner. I, where, use your fucking mandolin guards, people. But like the idea of purposefully being able to stab yourself, I don't know. It's one of those things that the action of doing it hurts. So in that way, you know, when people shoot themselves, you know, you shoot yourself in the arm. To, that I can more understand. Because you squeeze the trigger and then it happens and you're done. Whereas a knife, you start pressing in and it hurts and you have to keep pushing. Like, I mean, you do I mean, it don't, fast. Don't shoot or stab yourself. but Or anyone else. Or any of these. Oh, yeah, don't shoot or stab people. Including you. Uh, ugh, I don't like it. So, though Marley survived her attack... She wasn't really able to provide a ton of clues. She suffered severe head trauma in the attack because, again, the side of her head was chopped in by an axe. Mm -hmm. And over a few months and extensive surgery and treatment to save her, she was diagnosed with retrograde amnesia. And she has no memory of what happened. So on June 13th of 2016, like a year and a half after the murders, Henry Von Breda handed himself over to the police because they like made an announcement or something they were going to arrest him. And his lawyer was like, yo, hand yourself over. Yep. So he did. The next day on the 14th, um, he appeared in court to three charges of murder, one of attempted murder, and one of defeating the ends of justice, which is kind of like like lying to police or like covering up evidence. I don't remember what the phrase for that is in the U.S. Our listeners are screaming it at me right now. <laughs> I'll just continue nodding because I can't remember either. Yeah. The only thing in my mind is miscarriage of justice. And that's not, that's not the right thing. Anyways, they agree to like move forward with and bail is set at 100,000 rand. Which sounds like a lot. That equates to about eight thousand U.S. dollars, or about six thousand uh, pounds. So he bailed out, and then you know, eventually 
he went to full trial and the court heard everything that his wounds had been self-inflicted and then just a bunch of the other inconsistencies in his testimony he had said that these guys broke in to rob their home but nothing had been taken really and so they're like why would an intruder who's going to rob you ignore all these valuable items and just do a killing spree and when he was pressed on that he couldn't answer and he also couldn't answer why there's no signs of forced entry or why he hadn't been attacked in the same way his family had. And medical experts um, looked at the gashes and attacks on his family members, and they were able to see that they came from one attacker who used the exact same amount of force on each victim. And so it would not make sense that Henry escaped basically unscathed. Even just in, like, telling a story that doesn't make sense, like I was saying, literally, if there truly was an intruder and Henry's the only one that saw them, Henry's going to be their number one target. They're not going to, like, stab him with a knife and giggle and run away. Also, they just killed three people. They're not going to giggle and run away at anything. I know. And then security experts were also called in um, to the trial And they said that they phrased it as not even Houdini could have broken into this home. I mean, these are like rich fucking people. Like, think the house on the purge. In the purge. That's what I'm imagining. I imagine there's a button somewhere in the house where the metal shutters go. Also, can we just like talk about the fact that you you have seen a movie and are talking about a movie that I haven't seen and you hate movies? (gasps) I yeah. do. I mean, The Purge I've is never not seen good the purge. movie. I know. That's why I've never seen it. I actually had to watch it for class um, when I was in oh, college. Oh, a psychology had, class, right? It was um, family and human sciences or something. It was like basically interpersonal relationships was the class. It was for my HR minor. And one of our assignments was to watch The Purge and write a paper about if we think this could actually happen. And I thought that was the dumbest shit ever. (laughs) But I realized after doing it that the point of it was not to write the paper. Our professor was wanting us to create this dialogue and have these arguments and interpersonal communications amongst ourselves as students using the movie and the paper as like a catalyst for that. And I was like, you fucking genius. But, I mean, in my paper, I was like, no, that's dumb. All crime is legal. Bitch, what about crimes that, like, take time? Like, can I steal a, can I rob a bank and not be arrested for robbing the bank, but be arrested for possession of stolen goods? It's not thought through. Also, don't murder people. Right. But also, I wrote a paper on could the purge happen? The answer is no. It could have been a one-word paper. No. (laughs) But anyways, back to the trial. So security experts are like, no one could break into this house. And while their neighborhood, the Desalze Golf Estate, it is described as a medium security gated community. But what that means is that it's considered one of the safest places to live in South Africa. There are motion detectors, an alarm system, 24-hour guard patrol, access-controlled gates, and an electric fence. Like, no one's breaking into your house. And then another inconsistency, again, was the fact that, like, he said he called the police immediately. Everything points to they 
were dead for three hours before he called the police. Wait, I thought it was four hours. It was, well, I'm guessing because he looked up the emergency number at like 4 a.m. So I assume he probably did that like. Right after. Right after. Maybe it was right four. I don't know. It was sometime around that time. Around 4 a.m. is when the murders happened, when the attacks happened. And around 7 a.m., 7.12 is when he called the police. And that delay was argued in court that it was because he wanted his family to bleed to death. That is awful. My God, I'm feeling for his sister because it sounds like the other three, his parents and his brother, died pretty quickly. I mean, I don't know. They could have had to lay there and bleed out a little bit as or a lot, not a little bit as well. But the fact that his sister survived and she was just literally laying there dying for hours. She doesn't remember anything about it, which I'm very thankful for. So it's not clear, you know, did she play dead? Was she asking him for help that whole time? You know, it's not its not known what happened. I mean, to be totally honest, I wouldn't be surprised if she was just completely unconscious. I mean, an axe to the head, yeah. But on May 21st of 2008, the court delivered its verdict and it found him guilty on three counts of murder, one count of attempted murder, and also defeating the ends of justice. And on June 7th of 2018... Henry von Breda was sentenced to three life terms in prison for the murders of his mother, father, and brother, 15 years for the attempted murder of his sister, and then another 12 months for obstruction of justice. That's what it is. That's what we call it in America. Obstruction of justice. Y'all were all yelling obstruction of justice at me. And now I know. (laughs) But yeah, he's in prison for fucking ever. He should be. This is... Do we know any motive? There's a lot of confusion on motive. You know, is it one that he wanted to kill his dad so he could, like, or kill his whole family so he would be, like, the uh, benefactor of all the money? But there's a lot of confusion around if that was any kind of reason or what was happening. Was he into drugs and needed money to buy more? There's, There's a lot of speculation and nothing really confirmed. Well, and you bring up drugs, and it honestly sounds like, I mean, the fact that he fucking did this, and when he was on that um, 911 but not 911 call, that he was very, like, weird and quiet. Like, I mean, it sounded like he was influenced by something on some kind of drug. On PCP or something. I don't know if y'all have PCP in South Africa. I'm pretty sure I don't actually really know what PCP is, but. I'm pretty sure that they have every drug everywhere. Well, I mean, the internet, so. Um, but holy shit, what a horrific axe murder. Like, no, I hate it. I wish we knew why. Me too. That was one thing I hated when I got to the end of my research and it was like, and who knows? Maybe it's this, maybe it's this. We don't know. He won't say. So that was the case of the Von Breda murders. Tell me about your horrifying axe murder that I really don't want to hear but thankfully, I have a half bottle of wine left. Thankfully, I have a half bottle of wine left because I'm going to need it while I recount this one. Also, just still reeling from the fucking case you just told me about. Yeah. And I literally just saw my face in my little FaceTime thingy or whatever. And this is a staining wine. So uh, maybe don't drink it on a first date. Or maybe yeah, do because um, fucking go for it. Yeah, do whatever you want. Um, Be you on your first date. 
But uh, surprisingly, with how dark mine is, uh, my lips are not stained. They're not, but I had like a full-on reverse lip liner going on. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway. Okay. So I picked one that I think you're going to be really interested to hear. Okay. I did the Lizzie Borden axe murders. So I know this is one I should know about. I literally only know the name. I don't know anything about it. I just about, you know, seven seconds ago learned that it was an axe murder. So. Okay. You know. Yeah, I literally. No, you, Brittany's face is horrified. No, but I literally don't know anything about this case. I, I know it's old. Like the 20s or Civil War times. or I will also admit, I did not know all the details. But, oh my god, this was one of the most fascinating cases I think I've ever covered on the podcast. I really, I got real into this one. Like, deep reading multiple articles. Because, number one, there's a shit ton of information out there. Um, And speaking of a shit ton of information, let me tell you about my sources. I definitely dwindled it down. I didn't do too many because, honestly, Mm -hmm. I could have like a hundred. So the first source I used was an article from Famous Trials, which is a website run by Professor Douglas O'Linder. This website is powered by the law school at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. And so they have articles written by this professor of like all these historical crimes and trials. It was fascinating. Like I bookmarked this website because it's one that I'm going to refer to. And like all of his information is sourced like again because he's a professor and we so highly recommend checking that out i don't know if it was born out of a project or what but loving it then i also read an article from rolling stone by elizabeth yuko and an article in smithsonian magazine by joseph conforti and joseph conforti was born and raised in fall river massachusetts where this murder happened and Mm -hmm. he taught um new england history at the university of southern maine and he's published several books on the new england history and the last source i used as i talked about at the very beginning of this episode episode uh was (laughs) buzzfeed unsolved the murders that haunted the lizzie borden house great episode of buzzfeed unsolved i just i want to marry both ryan and shane right like same they're both in relationships with like women or whatever but like hi i'm here too we can change that no i'm just kidding okay so maybe this will spark your memory just a tiny bit lizzie borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax when she saw what she had done she gave her father 41 is that like a children's nursery rhyme? Yeah, I mean, it's just like the ring around the rosy, the fucking plague shit. Yeah, this one's a little more on the nose. It is. <laughs> or should I say, on the back. We have all heard, except for Tyler, apparently, of Lizzie Borden. and Yeah, I feel like this is, I feel like this is the same reaction of you being like, mm-hmm, yeah, well, and, you know, America had a civil war. And I'm like, what? How can a war be civil? It's like the opposite. No, but I literally <laughs> that is have so heard. Real. <laughs> I know. But um, I've literally heard of the name Lizzie Borden. I know I should know more. Literally, again, just learned that I guess she axed her mom and dad. Tyler, 
we all love you and we're fully aware that you host a true crime podcast and pretty much know shit about true crime, except now you have a pretty extensive knowledge because of how many cases we've covered. <laughs> I'm also the one in our podcast who has a criminology degree, which I think is about to get revoked. I literally think if you were to tell your professors of all your criminology courses, if you literally were like, who's Lizzie Borden? They would have kicked you out of the classroom. After today, I won't be able to say that anymore. That is true. Okay, so a lot of us, most of us, and if you haven't, I'm just dogging on Tyler because it's easy, but a lot of us have heard, have heard of Lizzie Borden, but how many of us actually know what happened? Which that's that's the point I'm getting at is why I covered this case. Do we really, do you know the story? You will after I tell it to you. So on a hot day, August 4th, 1892, so yes, long fucking time ago. Oh God, that's like fucking Little House on the Prairie times. I don't even know what time that was, but it was a long time ago. At 92 2nd Street in Fall River, Massachusetts, a woman named Bridget Sullivan, who was the maid at the Borden family residence, she was laying in bed after she finished washing the outside windows. She wasn't feeling really well, kind of ate something that didn't wasn't settling. So she's laying down in bed, and then all of a sudden, she hears a cry from Lizzie, who was the youngest of the two Borden daughters. She screamed, come down quick, father's dead. Somebody came in and killed him. So Bridget, who the family often called Maggie, she ran downstairs and she saw the body of Andrew Borden. He had been hacked almost beyond recognition. About a half hour later, after Andrew's body had been covered and the downstairs had been searched by police officers for evidence of an intruder, a neighbor who had come to comfort Lizzie, her name was Adelaide Churchill, she went upstairs and made a really grisly discovery. The body of oh. Abby Borden, Lizzie's stepmother, was in the bedroom, also hacked to death. Investigators found Abby's body cold, while Andrew's, when they arrived, had still been warm. This indicated that Abby had been killed earlier, maybe even like an hour and a half earlier than her husband. So no one, after, you know, he's found, the police get there and they're like, oh my God, this man's dead. No one thought to like, I wonder where his wife is. Maybe we should check the room to see if she's taken a nap or whatever. Like no one went up there. No one thought to inform her or look for her. I mean, maybe they did look for her, but I would assume your bedroom would be the first place you would look. Well, she wasn't in her bedroom. She was in, like, either a guest room or the room of uh, the uncle that lived in the home. Oh, okay. Also, she had left earlier that morning for, like, a doctor's appointment or something, and no one really heard her come home. However, Lizzie did make a random comment, like, when everyone was there, like, oh, no, I I think I heard Abby get home. I think she went upstairs to lay down, and that's when they went upstairs and found her. So, like, Lizzie kind of, like, pointed them in the direction. In the early hours after the discovery of the bodies, people only knew that whoever attacked these victims attacked them at home in broad daylight on a really busy street that was just, like, a block away from the city's business district. But there was no evidence of motive, so there was no robbery, no sexual assault, neighbors and passersby they didn't hear anything they didn't hear any type of attack and no one saw a suspect enter or leave the Borden property so 
there's a lot of confusion of like, how the shit did this happen? So the Fall River Herald reported the news of the Borden murders, and it spread like wildfire. Hundreds of people poured to Second Street, where Andrew Borden and his family had lived for years in like just just like idealistic, happy neighborhood. They were mm-hmm. they were a very wealthy family. But Andrew was known to be a little bit of a penny pincher. And so he had not like this big house on the hill. He had a smaller, more modest home for his family. Okay. Penny pincher. There was a Herald reporter who visited the crime scene and he described the face of the deceased man as sickening. And so I'm going to read his quote from the paper article. Over the left temple, a wound six by four inches wide had been made as if it had been pounded with the dull edge of an axe. The left eye had been dug out and a cut extended the length of the nose. The face was hacked into pieces and the blood had covered the man's shirt. So literally his face was, like I said, hacked almost beyond recognition. That's a gruesome as fuck newspaper. I feel like you would not read that in the news today. I would not log on to CBS Austin and be like, a woman was found today, a four by six inch gash on her head, her eye popped out. Like, no, that... No, I know. That's a lot. It It is. I do think newspapers were a little bit more brutal in the past, um, because now you don't read this kind of shit. No, it just... Ew. So, however, despite this really gory scene... The room was pretty much in order and there were no signs of any type of a scuffle. And a lot of that is because it's pretty much assumed that Andrew was laying on the couch taking a nap. So he was probably asleep at the time of the attack. Initial speculation as to the identity of the murderer centered on a Portuguese laborer who had visited the Borden home early in the morning. And he went there to ask for the, the wages that were due to him. But Andrew told him that he had no money and to call later. Don't really know a lot of information on, like, what this incident is. Additionally, the story in the paper added that Abby Borden, um, like, there was medical evidence that showed that she was killed by a tall man who struck her from behind. So, like, again, talking about angles and whatnot, Uh it looked like it was from someone who was tall. Mind you, this is, like, Mm -hmm. 1892. Not that they don't know physics, but I'm I'm just saying, reminder of the year. So, however, unlike the poem says, the victims actually had a total of 29 wounds, not 81. And the weapon, it wasn't actually an axe. It was most likely a hatchet. So, like, a baby axe. I, 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 yeah, but I think colloquially most people would still call that an axe. They would, but I just wanted to clarify. It was most likely a hatchet. No, that's, that's fair. So initially Lizzie was not on any of the suspect lists. She was, um, you know, after all, she was a Sunday school teacher at her wealthy central congressional church. People of her class, you know, they could never accept that a person like Lizzie would slaughter her parents. So like she was never a suspect at the beginning. Okay. But during the interrogation, Lizzie's answers to different police officers, they shifted. And she wasn't able, like, she didn't cry at all. And so the police, they were pretty mm, suspicious. Granted, we have talked about how you cannot judge someone by how they respond to tragedy. Yeah. But I 
get it. I mean, the police officers yeah. are like, your parents were just hacked and you found them and you can't even cry? Uh, so she's basically like, there's been a murder. Oh, no. Look at that. I don't know exactly how she's reacting, but she's not crying. Two days after the murder, the papers began reporting evidence that 33-year-old Lizzie Borden might have had something to do with her parents' murders. Most significantly, this evidence came from Eli Bentz, who was a clerk at S.R. Smith's drugstore in Fall River, and he told police that Lizzie had visited the store the day before the murders And she was trying to purchase some Prusik acid, which was a really deadly poison. Oh. A story in the Boston Daily Globe reported rumors that Lizzie and her stepmother never got along together peacefully, and that for a really long time, they have not spoken. It was also noted, though, that family members insisted that the relationship between Lizzie and her stepmom was pretty normal, and, like, things were fine. I'm sorry, I'm still stuck on the fact that... And yeah, I guess it's 1892 and you can like, I don't know, buy cocaine as child's Robitussin. But (laughs) the fact that it's like, we have this deadly, deadly acid poison at the drugstore. You hop into Walgreens and you're like, um, where do you keep the, um, cyanide and the methylmercury? And they're like, it's right down the aisle by the hall's, uh, cough drops. Well, it's weird. It is weird. It'll come back. They viewed Lizzie above suspicion. They didn't think that she did it. So the Boston Herald was saying that her life was not unmaidenly or, you know, there was not even a single disturbingly unkind act. Oh, I mean, deliberately unkind act. Sorry, disturbingly unkind. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, what's disturbingly unkind versus regularly unkind? She stole uh, candy from a baby or... She stole candy from baby and then pushed them down a hill. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that would Rude. be disturbingly unkind. No, but basically yeah. she did not have any deliberately unkind acts that she had done. So they were like, no, Liz didn't do this. Police came to the conclusion that the murders must have been committed by someone who, who was already in the Borden home. But they were really puzzled by the lack of blood anywhere except for right around the bodies of the victims and their inability to uncover any obvious murder weapon. At this point, there's no murder weapon. So they're like, we think it had to have been someone in the house. However, the blood is only where the victims are. There's no trails of it anywhere. And we can't find a murder weapon. Well, I mean, there's Lizzie who found it. And then there's like maid who has food poisoning. So increasingly, suspicion started to turn more toward Lizzie. This is also because her older sister, Emma, was out of the home. So Emma also lived in the house, but she was out of town at the time the murders happened. So she was not seen as a suspect. Investigators found it odd that Lizzie knew so little about her stepmother's whereabouts after 9 a.m. She told people, like, her stepmom had gone upstairs to put shams on the pillows and, like, she really didn't know any other whereabouts. That's so boring. It is. She went upstairs, but shams on the pillows. And Lizzie just, like, forgot <laughs> she... about her, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> like, fuck, how hard is that? Like, I have a few pillow shams. It takes maximum 10 seconds. Also, what a weird excuse. All right, I'm going to go upstairs and put shams on the pillows. Okay. So the police also found it pretty unconvincing that Lizzie was telling a story about 
the 15 minutes in which Andrew, uh, her father, was murdered in the living room, Lizzie said that she was out in the backyard barn looking for lead sinkers for an upcoming fishing excursion. But, like, this barn loft where she was looking, the police went up there and they saw no footprints on the really dusty floor. And it was really, really stifling hot in this loft. So no one's going to want to be up there on one of the hottest days of the year for more than just a couple minutes looking for equipment that they wouldn't even need for a few days. So yeah, that just wasn't settling well with them. Yeah, that's weird. There were also theories about a tall male intruder. They, they reconsidered these and... One of the leading physicians explained that hacking is almost a positive sign of a deed by a woman who is unconscious of what she's doing. So they've got one physician or like one examiner saying, oh, the mom was killed by like a tall man. And then another physician saying, no, this like repetitive hacking, that's that's a woman who's just you know, she's having a break with with herself and she doesn't know what she's doing. She's just hacking. That sounds like it could be a sexist generalization. I mean, it's 1892. I feel like men it hack. is. I literally just did a case about it, but like I, don't I said, know about that. it's 1892. So, eh, yeah, okay. it is a sexual, like, or sexist generalization. <laughs> it's like, I hope it's not sexual. It's... Women hack because they wish they had penises. It. <laughs> oh. It's, um,. Sexist. So on August 9th, an inquest into the Borden murders was held in the courtroom over the police headquarters. This inquest was the only time that Lizzie ever testified in court under oath. At this point in time, the finer details of the Borden murders, they were pretty hazy from the beginning. Starting when thousands of curious townspeople visited the crime scene and unintentionally tampered with evidence. That is something that... I understand at a level of being interested in true crime. Obviously, we have an int- we have a true crime podcast. We love like investigation, discovery, and all that. the The idea of going to a murder scene as a tourist, I know. It, I mean, we talked about it in the case you did, however long ago, about like the the people in like Kansas or whatever. Yeah. Who would murder travelers along the road mm-hmm. and the people like stealing bricks and shit? That one. Yeah. If my neighbor got murdered, or there was like you know, a murder scene in the neighborhood next to mine. I'm not, there's no part of me that's like, oh, I want to go in and look. Fuck no. No. Oh my God. First off, people's privacy. Second off, it's none of your goddamn business. Third off, someone died. I know. Don't traipse through a fucking living room being like, and this is where he was found. Like, I will say, nowadays, you can go to this house, and it literally is kind of like a museum to the murders, um, which is... I don't like it. I don't either. But the thing is, the Borden family was incredibly wealthy, and this is in a very wealthy city or town. Like, in today's money, I think Andrew's net worth was like $10 million. And so okay. they're wealthy for, like, your neighbor that's not a celebrity kind of thing. Not that that justifies being a nosy little shit and going to the murder scene. Exactly. So before the criminal magistrate, District Attorney Hosea Knowlton, he questioned Lizzie Bridget, who was, like I said, the maid, and also their household guest, Lizzie's uncle, John Morse, uh, Morris, and a couple other people. 
So during her four hours of examination, Lizzie gave like really confusing and contradictory answers to all these questions. So after two days, the inquest adjourned and Lizzie was arrested on August 11th, one week after the murders. And she was sent to the county jail where she was going to end up being for the next nine months. Lizzie entered a plea of not guilty to the charges of murder And her arrest provoked this uproar that quickly became national news. So, obviously, like I was saying, like, media has been a part of this immediately. Well, once she was arrested, it spread everywhere. Um, There were Mm -hmm. women's groups that rallied to Lizzie's side, especially the Women's Christian Temperance Union and suffragists. And Lizzie's supporters protested that a that at trial, she would not be judged by a jury of her peers because women at this time were non-voters, so they couldn't serve on the jury. And so this group of women was like, no, she's not going to be judged by a group of her peers, and that's the whole fucking point of a jury, and she's not going to get that. Which is literally something I have never thought of, and I'm like, holy shit, that is so true. Yeah, I literally, just when you said that, realized women weren't on juries until like 1920 or whatever. That's just a thought that never crossed my mind is that every jury before that to convict someone, whatever gender they were, was all men on the jury. Crazy fucking thought, isn't it? I also just can't. I mean, and it's because I was born in 1993, but the idea of like women even having to fight for the right to vote, I just don't get. I mean, it's it's something to me that is so foreign that it sounds made up but it's also something that i hope uh, my kids and grandkids will say about a lot of the issues we are facing right now i hope they're gonna look back and be like grandpa what do you mean gay marriage was legalized when you were 23 that's a lie 22 like that that's not real that doesn't make sense or I know. I mean, all the other shit that we are still fighting for now, just across the board. I cannot wait for the day that my kids and grandkids are like, ew, we just learned this in history. And I'm like, bitch, I lived through it. You know how you talk to your kids. It's crazy to think that women, women have not been able to vote for 100 years yet. That will be 2021. And the fact that women are still fighting for rights today in fucking 2020 is sick and And the fact that we've never had a female leader in the united states for one well and like like you're just saying like it's equality of everyone man woman gay straight Mm. non-gender binary like everything race like i just it's one of those things and i don't want to go on a tangent because we could totally harp on this but the fact Uh, that we're still fighting for equality for human beings is something i don't think i will ever understand one thing i'll leave it on is um that i saw this uh quote or phrase i am not able to quote it so if you know who said it first uh please let us know but it was saying that equality is not a piece of pie just because someone gets more doesn't mean you get less fucking love that it's so true so back to lizzie i agree 
So on August 22nd, Lizzie returned to the Fall River courtroom for her preliminary hearing. So at the end of this, Judge Josiah Blaisdell, he pronounced that Lizzie was probably guilty and he ordered her to face a grand jury and possible charges for the murder of her parents. So he didn't have to call the grand jury, but he did. Okay, so it's kind of like an indictment. Well, yeah, there's enough evidence to move forward, kind of. They were worried they wouldn't get the indictment, which is why they called the grand jury. They needed another, like, pre-trial step. Oh. So in November, the grand jury met. After first refusing to issue an indictment, the jury reconvened and heard new evidence from Alice Russell. Alice was a family friend who stayed with the two Borden sisters in the days following the murders. Alice told grand jurors that she witnessed Lizzie burning a blue dress in a kitchen fire. And she said that Lizzie explained that she was burning it because it was covered in old paint. So this was coupled with earlier testimony from Bridget Sullivan, their maid, that Lizzie was wearing a blue dress on the morning of the murders. And the evidence was enough to convince the grand jurors to indict Lizzie for the murders of her parents. One thing to note... They had a blue dress of Lizzie's that was in evidence, obviously not the one that was burned. So it was another dress that was burned because this blue dress that she was wearing, I think it had like blood on like the hem or something. Obviously not something you could be wearing if you were hacking your parents to death. But if you're wearing a blue dress earlier and then changed into another blue dress... Maybe it's less suspicious and that's you get blood on the hem. But also, maybe she owns a lot of blue dresses. Blue's a great color. I own a fuck ton of blue shirts. If someone saw me in a blue shirt, that don't mean shit. Let's be real. If someone saw me in a black or gray shirt, it would mean shit. That's all I own. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, you don't have blue. I own a lot of blue. It's my, it's my button-ups. All my button-ups are basically blue. This will come back later, but one thing you've got to remember, this is 18, 1892. A woman changing a dress is not something that happens in a minute or two. It takes fucking time. Because women are wearing a ton of shit, lots of buttons, lots of loops, lots of hooks, lots of pulling the corset tighter. There's a bunch of shit going on. So changing your clothes, fuck all of that. that ain't happening fast. So the trial of Lizzie Borden started on June 5th, 1893. And Thomas Moody opened the state's case. Moody's like doing his like opening speech shit or whatever and he carelessly threw Lizzie's blue dress onto the prosecution table during his speech and inside the dress were the skulls of Andrew and Abby. Um no that what the what kind of theater bullshit is this? Absolutely that theater bullshit and so like the sight of her parents skulls caused Lizzie to like faint and it it lasted for several minutes which made like the the crowd was like thrilled there's all this excitement all these spectators are like oh my god she fainted and everyone's I don't know just like feeling real weird about this situation so for about two hours during Moody's speech Lizzie was being watched from behind a fan like because she had fainted so they've got a fan on her and this yeah. this prosecutor described Lizzie as the only person person having the motive and opportunity to commit the double murders. And then he pulled from a bag the head of the axe that he claimed Lizzie used to kill her parents. But the thing is about this axe, 
It was just the head of it. It was detached from the handle, and there was no blood on mm-hmm. it. No blood on the sacks at all. Granted, I, it's not like they got luminol I, at this time, but... Yeah. Well, I I almost asked, like, well, did they test it? No, it's 1893. They they did not test it, Tyler. They didn't. They looked at it, and they were like, oh, it doesn't have blood on it. But the prosecution is claiming this is the murder weapon. So the first of several witnesses for the state testified concerning events in and around the Borden home on the morning of August 4th, 1892. The most important of these witnesses was 26-year-old Bridget, so Maggie. Maggie testified that Lizzie was the only person she saw in the home at the time of the murder of the Borden parents. She said that she did not witness over the two years of her employment with the family, any signs of, like, an ugly relationship between Lizzie and her stepmother. But other witnesses that came forward said that Lizzie and her stepmom had a really bad relationship. Yeah, but she lived with them. I know. Sullivan also testified that Andrew and Abby, they experienced some stomach pains the day before the murder. So, I don't know, just, you remember that poison Lizzie bought? Um, I do. And... She told the jurors that the presumed time of Abby's murder, Lizzie claimed that she was outside washing the windows. Wait, but I thought the maid had just come in after washing the windows. See, there you go. Inconsistencies. Um, Sullivan testified that she opened the door for Andrew when he got home from his walk around town that morning. And then she described hearing Lizzie's cry for help a few minutes after 11 o'clock. Again, when she was upstairs sleeping or trying to go to sleep. Yeah. Dr. Seabury Bowen, who was the Borden family physician, he was summoned to the home by Lizzie um, after they found the bodies on August 4th. And he recounted Lizzie's story about looking for like the lead sinkers in the backyard barn. And she was also saying that her father's troubles with his tenants probably had something to do with the murders. So like with the maid, with the the servants, the all the people around the house, like well, one of them probably killed him. Okay. That's a lot to tell your doctor. Yeah. But on cross examination, Seabury agreed with the defense's suggestion that the morphine that he prescribed for Lizzie after the murders happened, it might account for some of the confused and con- contradictory testimony that she gave at the inquest following the murders because he had prescribed something for her because, like, her parents were just killed and she needed some morphine, apparently. I know. That's what I'm getting. I'm like, oh, she needs an anti-anxiety. Morphine. Like, where's this doctor and his prescription pad? Like, hey, what's up? So the most compelling testimony came again from Alice Russell. Alice described a visit from Lizzie the night before the murders in which Lizzie announced that she would soon be going on a vacation. And she felt that like something was hanging over her, but she couldn't tell what it was. Then, according to Russell, after describing her parents' severe stomach sickness which Lizzie was saying was attributed to some bad baker's bread, so like some bad bread they got. Lizzie then revealed that she was afraid something was going to happen. After she explained this feeling, Lizzie told Alice that she wanted to go to sleep with one eye open half the time for fear someone might burn down the house or hurt her father because he was so discourteous to people. Now, turning his questioning to the Sunday after the murders, District Attorney Moody 
He asked Alice about the dress burning incident that we talked about earlier. Alice recounted that when she asked Lizzie what she was doing with the blue dress, Lizzie replied, I'm going to burn this whole thing up. It's covered with paint. But on cross-examination, defense attorney George Robinson, he attempted through his questions to suggest that a guilty person who's trying to destroy some incriminating evidence, they'd be pretty unlikely to do that in such an open fashion as Lizzie was with this dress. Yeah. So Alice also recounted a conversation with Lizzie about a note that her mother had received, which according to Lizzie, it was from a messenger the morning of the murders summoning her to go visit a sick friend. And so Lizzie was using this note to explain why she thought her stepmom had left the house. And this is why she didn't look for her after they discovered her father's body. Okay. Okay, that makes more sense. However, despite a thorough search of the Borden home, no note was ever found. And so Alice said to Lizzie that, you know, her stepmother probably burned it. And Lizzie was like, yeah, she must have. So it's it's just kind of suspicious. So the defense actually made their case for the most part using the state's witnesses And they would just continuously hammer at the contradictory testimony of the key prosecution witnesses. The defense also explored holes in the prosecution's case, with one of their really big questions being, where was the handle of this axe that supposedly broke off? And the state had no answer. The defense also exploited the government's own timeline which allowed for about like 8 to 13 minutes between Andrew's murder and Lizzie's like screaming to Bridget. And George Robinson, her attorney, suggested that there was a lot of difficulty of washing blood off of one's person, like of your body, your clothes, and the murder weapon, and then hiding the murder weapon all within this short span of time. I don't know enough about uh, forensics in the 1890s, but I don't know how you'd be like, there was 13 minutes between his attack and her screaming. I also feel like 13 minutes isn't isn't necessarily not long enough to wash up and hide something. But that, I mean, you'd have to be quick and be planned. But I also am like, where are you coming up with 13 minutes? I, I don't know. But I will say, I will again bring up the fact that women cannot really get in and out of their clothes that quickly. It's a fucking process. No, that's true. That is a a good point. Because I was thinking of, like, cleaning up as, like, washing your hands or something. Which, obviously, it involves a lot more than that. It's probably like jumping into the shower. Which, again, at this time, I, I mean... I totally honestly don't know. Maybe it's a bucket of water. Like, Yeah, let us know if showers were invented before 1992. Or 1992. <laughs> uh-huh. That's what I meant. 1892. Showers were invented the Did year showers before you were born. In the <laughs> That's when the first shower became a thing. And it just revolutionized cleaning oneself. It very much did. Um. So the decisive moment in the trial, it... Probably came when the three-judge panel ruled that Lizzie's inquest testimony, which that's the one that was full of all these contradictions and, like, stuff that didn't make sense, they said it could not be submitted into evidence by the prosecution. Oh. And the reasons that the judges concluded this was that Lizzie, at the time of this inquest, 
she was, for all practical purposes, a prisoner charged with two murders, and her testimony at the inquest was made in absence of her attorney, so it was not voluntary. So Lizzie should have been warned that she had the right under the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution to remain silent. She was never told that. That sounds very progressive. That sounds like some Miranda rights shit, which didn't happen until the 1960s. I know. Huh. That's really interesting. It is. That, that's, that, that's the case that made it, or um, that, that was the argument that made her testimony inadmissible. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, yes, one, we all agree with Miranda rights today, but it's like fucking 70 years ahead of the, ahead of the curve. And so on June 14th, the prosecution rested its case. The state also, though, they wanted to have the druggist Eli Bentz recount to the jury his story of Lizzie buying, um, like, or trying to buy the poison the day before the murders. Jurors were excused during this conversation, and the state tried to establish through medical experts, druggists, uh, furriers, and chemists, the qualities, properties, and uses of Prusik acid. And then after listening to all the state's foundational case, the judges concluded that the evidence should be excluded. Oh. I don't know why. Maybe their argument wasn't strong enough. Again, like you were saying, this shit was just sold in the store anyway. So shrug of shoulders. Nope. Not gonna be evidence we're gonna hear. So that was a big thing against the prosecution. So when it came time, you know, it's the defense's turn. And they actually only presented a handful of witnesses. Charles Gifford and Uriah Kirby, they reported seeing strange men near the Borden house around 11 o'clock on the night before the murders. And Dr. Benjamin Handfee testified that he saw a pale-faced young man on the sidewalk near the Borden house around 10.30 in the morning on August 4th. A plumber and a gas fitter testified in um, that in the day or two before the murders, They had been in the Borden's barn loft, and so this casted a lot of doubt on the police assertions that Lizzie's alibi was suspect because the dust was undisturbed. So it's like, if these guys were up there a couple days before, the dust would be disturbed. And they were like, we were there. So Emma Borden, who was, like I said, Lizzie's older sister, she was the defense's most anticipated witness. Emma testified that Lizzie and her father had a really good relationship, and that the relationship between Lizzie and her stepmother was was cordial. Like, it was good. So summing up for the defense, A.V. Jennings argued that there is not one particle of direct evidence in this case from beginning to end against Lizzie Borden. There is not a spot of blood. There is not a weapon that they have connected to her in any way, shape, or fashion. So following Jennings... Robinson, in his closing statement for the defense, insisted that the crime must have been committed by a maniac, some passerby, um, not by someone with a very respectable background like Lizzie. He said that the state had failed to meet its burden of proving guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, and that it was physically impossible for Lizzie without the help of a confederate, (laughs) lol, like, again, this is a long time ago, um, without the help of a confederate, so like a man, to have committed the crime within the timeline suggested by the prosecution. I 
agree with about half of his stuff. I agree that he did not uh, present enough, or that the state did not present enough evidence. But I don't agree with the fact that, like, a man was necessary to do this because she's a dainty lady who never heard a fly because women can't do anything and that's why they can't vote. Because, dude, women can do some scary fucking shit. Remember that you just said that. So, the jury deliberated for about an hour and a half before they returned their verdict. Not guilty. At hearing this, Lizzie let out a yell. She, like, sank into her chair. She, like, rested her hands on the courtroom rail. Put her face in her hands. And then she let out a second cry of joy. So, it's probably pretty fair to say that however likely it might be that Lizzie did murder her parents... The prosecution did fail to meet its burden of proving guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Like, you just said that. Like, they really had nothing against her. From what you've told me so far, I don't think that there's been enough evidence one way or another. Yeah, I mean, the state's case rested largely on the argument that it was impossible for anyone else besides Lizzie to have committed the crime. After the trial... Lizzie returned to Fall River, where she and her sister Emma purchased a really impressive home on the hill, which is the area of the city where everyone wanted to live, and they called it Maplecroft. It's like literally they had a fucking home big enough to be called something. Damn. I should start calling my apartment something. (laughs) We should all, like, I'm going to call mine, like, the loft. I don't know. I don't live in a loft. You you don't. (laughs) So Lizzie took an interest in theater... And she would frequently attend plays and often associate with actors and artists and all the bohemian types. Emma ended up moving out of Maplecroft in 1905. The sisters had a falling out. And Lizzie continued to live in Maplecroft until her death at 67 in 1927. And she was actually buried by the graves of her parents in Fall River's Oak Grove Cemetery. So basically, nativism, gender stereotypes, and wealth all played a role in letting Lizzie, the prime suspect in her father and stepmother's very violent deaths, go free. And so Mm -hmm. in in a lot of people's minds, there is no doubt that Lizzie did commit these murders. When we look at this, had the defendant at this time been a male, some speculate that the jury might have been more inclined to convict. So throughout this Borden saga, all of Lizzie's supporters were unable to consider what they saw as culturally inconceivable. This well-bred, virtuous Victorian woman who could honestly be referred to as like a Protestant nun. She was 33 years old. She was unmarried. She's a spinster. Mm -hmm. They could never like commit this type of patricide. A woman couldn't do this. So in the courtroom where... Men had all this legal power. Lizzie, she was not a helpless maiden, but she definitely had to present herself as one. So her lawyers told her to dress in black. She appeared in court, tightly corseted, dressed in flowing clothes, holding a bouquet of flowers in one hand and a fan in the other. One of the newspapers described her as quiet, modest, and well-bred. Yeah, Another paper stressed that she lacked any type of Amazonian proportions. And so she could not possess the physical strength, let alone the moral degeneracy to wield a weapon with, like, force to crack a skull. Um, okay. Yeah, a bunch of horse shit, right? Yeah. On top of that, 
With her father's money, Lizzie could afford the best legal team to defend her. And this included the former governor of Massachusetts, this was Robinson, who had appointed one of the three justices who would preside over the entire case. So, not surprisingly, the jury quickly decided to acquit her, and they actually waited for an hour so that it would appear that they had not made a hasty decision. So technically, this case does remain unsolved, and a lot of it is because in 1893, no one can imagine that a well-respected Victorian woman could commit such an atrocious crime. But you and I know full and well that that's a bunch of bullshit. Oh, yeah. I mean, women can do absolutely fucking anything. Lizzie Warden absolutely could have easily murdered her dad and stepmom. I mean, that's... We've done cases from around this time, before this time, fucking like Vera Renzi killing everyone. Literally fucking everyone. The fact that they're like, well... A woman couldn't hold an axe. Her dainty little arms couldn't hold it up. Like, absolutely, she could fucking murder someone. But from the evidence, everything I've heard, I don't think I could convict. I don't think I would, I would say, yeah. There's a, there's too many unanswered questions. And the evidence against her, in my mind, is like, she's the first person who found them. And she burned the dress. Yeah. You've got to remember, like, the crime scene was totally obliterated with all the fucking people visiting but like that is true honestly there are a ton of people who believe she totally did this and got away with it because of that mindset of like women can't do this and i think you could also look at a lot of the uh, um, collection of evidence with that same lens of they weren't looking at this like she did it i mean obviously the prosecution was but they didn't mm-hmm. have anything concrete that could actually convict her because it's true. Like they did not prove with beyond a shadow of a doubt that she did it. But there are some other theories too. One, okay. one of these theories is that her uncle, so her mom's brother, John Morris, he was the killer. He actually had a failed business with Andrew and he also happened to be a butcher. The thought is that he did it with like a meat cleaver. And also okay. his whereabouts on the day of the murder are unknown until about noon. No one knew where he was. So that's one possible theory. Another theory is that Bridget Sullivan, the maid, did it. And a lot of this is because she was literally upstairs in the bedroom. How could she not have heard the murder of Abby, like literally the floor below her, when she she herself admitted she hadn't fallen asleep? She was still awake. I mean, but she's like basically shitting herself, so... She hears a noise from down below. Then she has food poisoning. Yeah, like she's going through some shit. It's no as as someone who has had food poisoning before violently. <laughs> I I cannot imagine that if she heard a noise, she would even think about it, remember it, or register it. Like it's like a cool whatever. I mean, she has food poisoning, so she says. Who has evidence that that's the truth? I mean, okay, that's true. Is is the porcelain on the toilet cracked? That's how you know. <laughs> that's how you know it was food poisoning. She shattered porcelain, she chipped it, food poisoning. So lastly, there's this very popular theory, and this is used by a lot of fanfics, um, that Lizzie and Maggie, so Bridget, that they were in on it together. 
The theory states that the two of them were having a love affair. Miss Borden found out, so they had to kill him. I'm going to be totally honest. When I was doing my research, I realized there was a movie created it last year, or, or two years ago, 2018. Wow, fucking two years ago. 2018. That has Kristen Stewart, you know, Bella Twilight, and Chloe Savigny. And it's, it's called Lizzie is the name of the movie. And literally, I'm not spoiling anything because I only watched the trailer. But that movie is based on this theory. Because in the trailer, they're like, oh. what? I love both of them. Um, I don't know if it was a great movie, but it's out. I mean, it came out two years ago, so we could totally find it and watch it, and I kind of want to. I mean, I'm not going to because it's a movie, and I don't have the attention span to sit for an hour and a half to do anything other than 10-minute YouTube videos 13 times in a row, but, like, whatever. Like, that makes sense. Also, can we just, like, praise the fact that Chloe is, like, in her 40s and she's playing a 33-year-old instead of being 33 playing an 18-year-old? Like, I just, I love it. I'm just saying. Chloe Savigny is my fucking everything. I love her. She is fucking incredible. And I actually didn't know of her until, and this is gonna make me sound awful, but American Horror Story Hotel. Had not seen her in anything before that that I remembered. Fucking love her. She's an incredible actress. I also fucking love Kristen Stewart. She's an incredible actress. But that is the case of Lizzie Borden and the murder of Andrew and Abby. And it is a case that literally fascinates to this day. It has not gone away. It is over a hundred years old at this point. It's like almost 130 years old, but it literally just captivates us. And like I said, this was a fascinating one to research because I really don't know how I feel. Like, do I think she did it? Do I not? I don't know because the evidence is not there either way. That's kind of where I'm at is I'm like, I could absolutely see how it could be her, but from what I've heard, I'm not convinced but I'm not convinced that she's innocent. Exactly. Like, I don't, in the same way of it's not guilty until proven innocent, it's innocent until proven guilty. I'm like, no, I, I absolutely would not have convicted her on the evidence that was presented. given. Yeah, well. Yeah, presented. That's my case. And it's crazy. And honestly, you can find a lot of things written about this, a lot of documentaries. Like, this is a case that lives on. This is like Jack the Ripper level shit. Yeah. I mean, Lizzie Borden is synonymous with murder. I just somehow had no fucking idea anything about this. But okay. Well, you ready to hop into postmortem? Uh, I am. So I think that, I'm just gonna say, I think kind of obviously mine. Oh my god, I don't think so. Why? Okay, literally, Lizzie Borden is something that has stuck around for so long. Let's put it in today's perspective. So this is literally like Chris and Caitlyn Jenner have been murdered. And did Kim do it or Chloe? It is that level of recognition of a family and like, with a blended family, it's like, who did it? Who did it? Like, that's how big this uh, is. Okay, no, I mean, with, yeah, no, with that perspective, that would be literally the most intense case we've literally ever done. Like, right? The, 
No, I I don't even want to say it. Like, no. Okay, so, and that helps with perspective because I was the entire time wondering, and even to the end of your case, I was like, why is this one so well known? It's someone whose parents got murdered and maybe it was them, but they went to trial and it wasn't. You know, it's tragic, but we've had a lot of cases like it. So why is this one one that's persisted for 120 years? But that does help. Okay, no, I'll agree. I think I will go with you and say that your case was the more intense one. And I am not saying that yours is not really intense because it is. That case is insane. It's like literally those times when someone commits this atrocious crime And then tries to, like, pin it on a mysterious intruder. Which, I mean, I guess mine kind of also had this same theme going through. Um, But again, again, we don't really know if Lizzie did it or not. But, yeah, I honestly, I agree. Because of the notoriety, obviously I agree. I, like, yelled at you. But because of just how recognized this case is and how it still lives on in infamy, like, Lizzie Borden for the win. More, More intense. Yeah. No. Okay. So uh, for the next episode, I will pick the topic. But first off, I want to thank all of y'all for listening to us. Hope y'all really enjoyed this episode. If you did, make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Give us those five stars. We love hearing what y'all say, what y'all love about this, and love hearing from you. Also be sure to like and follow us on social. We're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Shoot us an email, bloodandwinepodcast at gmail.com. We love hearing everything. Send us suggestions of what what you love, what books you love, what docs you love. And again, thank y'all so, so much. This is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.